The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday morning at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So um, on top of tomorrow being Memorial Day, it just so happens to be my one month anniversary of marriage. Uh, I know. Wild, right? One month. Uh, but it's been amazing. Uh, my wife, Amy, she's an amazing, incredible, godly woman, and we've just had a blast. And uh, it's been fun looking back at the, the, the season we just left, uh, the dating season and the engaged season, and just kind of laughing at how we perceive certain things. Like I remember very early on where uh, it was the first time that I held her hand, and uh, you're already laughing. Okay, so it was the first time I, I, I held her hand, and um, this is a little scandalous. It was in her parents' house, uh, uh, on the couch, and uh, uh, I remember because we were sitting on, on the couch watching a movie, and I was off to the left side of the couch, and Amy was in the center of the couch, and there was a good foot of distance in between us. And I remember, we're watching the movie, but most of my brain is scheming up a plan for how I'm going to smoothly sneak my hand over. And there's never a smooth way to do it. Let's just be honest, fellas. So, so I'm scheming or whatever. And so I'm just kind of inching towards her on the couch because I don't want to like, you know, grab like that. So I'm, I'm kind of inching towards her. And I promise you, and she'll tell you this, she would like match me and go in the opposite direction. And so I'd, I'd inch over just a little bit and then like double the distance I just moved to her, she'd move away to the point that by the middle of the movie, I was now in the center of the couch and she was on the left side of the couch and she promises she didn't do it on purpose. Um, and so I'm there and, and eventually, I will have you know, I did hold her hand. It was awkward, but it was glorious. And so that happened. Uh, and then... Uh, uh, thank you for applauding that embarrassing moment. And then uh, another, another one that just sticks out is uh, I, I had an issue with, like I had this text message insecurity where I would send Amy a text, she'd respond, and then I'd respond back in a way that requires a response. Like there are some texts that, that could end a conversation and it's fine. I'd respond in a way that there's definitely a needed response and five minutes would go by. No response. 10 minutes, and I'm pacing. I'm checking my phone every 15 seconds to see if my ringer is just failing. And then 15 minutes go by. And I'm like, that's it. It's over. She hates me. I have no shot. This is, it's all done. And, and I just remember those moments. And it just goes to show, like, I, I'm, I'm one of those kinds of people. I'm a terrible waiter. Like, I'm a terrible at waiting for things. And I would interpret. I'd start to, like think that because she wouldn't respond to me, like, she must hate me. My view of her was all of a sudden distorted, and that wasn't the case. So I I think, perhaps on a more real-life, not-so-funny level, we all experience those seasons of waiting. We experience those times when the struggle is not necessarily that all of a sudden something has come in and caught you by surprise, and it's tragic, and and there's this pain. Sometimes that's not the, the case. Sometimes the struggle is that something hasn't happened. Sometimes the struggle is that we're waiting and waiting and waiting for something to come up, and it just doesn't come. Sometimes it's months, years, decades, and we're still waiting 
for that thing to come. And all of a sudden, if we aren't careful, that time of waiting can begin to distort how we see God. All of a sudden, we, we look at God and his character through the lens of what we see around us or what we don't see. So maybe it's a job we've been praying for. Maybe it's a kid, a child we've been praying for. Maybe it's a relationship that needs to be restored and still that person is not willing and we're just praying and praying. And the difficult thing is it's, these things are out of our control. Like we, we can't make them happen and so we feel powerless. And this struggle, this internal battle in the wait can be a grind. And so what we're doing throughout this series, uh, staying afloat when flooded by doubt, here's what we're doing. We're looking at the, the narrative of Noah and the flood. And we're taking a look at it from different angles. Last week, Pastor Roby kind of looked at the overarching picture and the beautiful promise at the end of the story. And if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go on the podcast and listen to it. But this week, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of get in the story and look and examine and experience the flood as though we are Noah. We're going to get in his shoes. We're going to look at it through his eyes. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. You can also follow along on the West Pines app or on a Bible app, um, and the verses will also be on the screen. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6. And uh, just so we're here at the same page, here's where we're at in the story. So God creates the universe. He creates everything. And he creates everything perfectly. Creation is in harmony, something beautiful. It's perfect. But then sin enters the world when Adam and Eve, though given a lush garden with all kinds of fruit that are delicious, so much provided for them, they choose to eat of the one fruit of the tree that God said not to eat from. And so sin enters the world. This happens in Genesis 3. And what's amazing to see is in Genesis 3, what's introduced along with sin is guilt, shame, and perhaps most vividly, death. Where the the chapters that follow the the fall in Genesis 3 are just filled with death. And so that brings us to Genesis chapter 6 where the situation had gotten so bad. Look what it says in verse 5 concerning man. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of, the, of his thoughts, of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So what becomes crystal clear as we read Genesis 6 and we start to get into this flood narrative is that things had gotten really bad on earth. Like you think of seasons in human history when we went through some stretches where there was ugly things happening. And the picture we have in Genesis is the earth is just full of violence, of murder, all kinds of evil and wickedness. And as we read the account, the things that begin to pop up off the page about God is that God is good and he's just. And so because God is good and because God is just, he cannot look at evil and wickedness and murder and be cool with it. God cannot sit back and see that and be fine with it. Because he is good and just, there is a just and right punishment for sin and rebellion. And so God literally pours out a judgment on mankind. He chooses to send this massive flood as a judgment because of all of the murder and violence that the earth was literally creation tearing itself apart in this downward spiral of destruction. And so God says, I'm going to bring an end to it. 
and then seemingly out of nowhere. It's almost as if, if we were people who have never heard this story before, perhaps, perhaps you're here this morning and uh, you wouldn't consider yourself a church person, or maybe you, you were invited uh, by a friend. First of all, we're glad that you're here. Uh, but maybe, maybe even if you're not as familiar with church, you've probably heard of Noah's Ark. I guess one of the stories that if you're born in America, you've probably heard. And so when we read the story, we know what's coming. But so far in the narrative in Genesis 6, all we know is God's going to bring an end to this. That man has grown increasingly wicked on the earth. There's going to be this massive flood. And then we get to verse 8 where there's a glimmer of hope. Look what it says. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And so God goes to Noah and says, Noah, because of the evil that's covered the earth, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send this massive flood. It's going to bring an end to all life. It's going to destroy everything. But you and your family are going to build an ark. Here are the instructions. Here are the dimensions. Here's how you're going to do it. And you're going to build this ark. And whatever's on the ark, you and every animal going in two by two, you are going to get in this ark. And whatever's in the ark will be saved. But whatever's outside the ark will be destroyed. Might want to get some food. It's going to be a long ride. Go. And that's what we get. Now, what, what, what did the ark look like? Like, what, what, what was the ark made like? So we have some idea of what it was because Genesis gives us some dimensions. But when God gave no instructions, it was by no means detailed. It was just a, a basic dimension of what the ark would look like. Now, in our graphic for our series... Uh, you can see that we have a picture of an ark, and that's one option of what some scholars, some people who mocked up the drawing believe it might have looked like. Here's another rendition of what the ark may have looked like. And so you can see there, this is kind of a mock-up of how it would have been built and how the animals would have gotten in. But here's, here's what we know about the ark, about its dimensions. Uh, we know that based on the conversion from the cubit, which is the, the unit of measure given here in Genesis, that it's approximately 450 feet long. So that's about a football field and a half long, and it's 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. This would have been the largest vessel in history to this point. This was a massive, massive vessel. And just so we can get a grasp on this, something as simple as the nail was not invented yet. At this time in history, there was no nail. Like the nail is like iPhone compared to what's going on here. That's way too advanced for these, these times. And he's building this massive ark. So imagine all of the planning that would have had to go into this. Imagine all of that. And here's, here's what we gather. Based on the dates given in Genesis and based on uh, the genealogies listed, we estimate that about anywhere between 10 and 70 years of Noah's life were spent building the ark. 10 to 70 years building this thing. And if it's on the lower end of the spectrum, then that means that Noah spent decades with this massive ark chilling in his backyard, killing all his grass, and just waiting for this flood thing that's supposed to come. And Noah's just there waiting anytime, you know. And, and meanwhile, violence is all around him, people killing each other, and Noah's there waiting. Maybe it did take all 70 years, we, we don't know. But it was this massive, this massive vessel, and it was just a long season where Noah just waited, him and his family they waited and waited and waited. And here's what's wild. The Bible, the Bible describes these 70 or so years of Noah's life in one verse. 
Genesis chapter 6, verse 22 says this. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. That's it. I can just picture Noah hanging out with God. You know, he's dead by now. And this is being recorded at much after Noah lived. And Noah sees this written for the first time. And he's like, seriously? One verse? Like, I couldn't even get two. Like, seriously? All of that time? Just think about, like, the engineering that it would have taken to do something like that. To think that that boat not only has an exterior, but an interior with multiple levels and rooms and some sort of infrastructure to get water to all the animals. Like, this would have been a massive undertaking. They didn't have any power tools, so they by hand cut down trees to gather the wood. Just an unbelievable amount of work. And all it says is Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And that was it. This incredibly long season of waiting in Noah's life. So when I read this, here's what I wonder. And maybe you think this too. What was it like on year 25? What was it like on year 40? When you're just about halfway through and you're still building this thing. Or it's already built, but you're just waiting. What what thoughts were going in Noah's mind? This long, like a lifetime of waiting. Uh, I came across this Microsoft, uh, this study done by Microsoft that was released a few weeks ago. And um, it said this headline, it said, Canadians have lower attention span on average than a goldfish. And uh, it wasn't a knock on Canadians. If you're Canadian here, we love you. Uh, but uh, uh, Americans are probably, have probably less of an attention span. But it said, no kidding, it said, Microsoft calculated, I have no idea how, that on average that uh, humans have an attention span today of eight seconds. That means we can hold our attention on one thing on average for eight seconds. Sounds kind of crazy. But they said that a goldfish is believed to have an attention span of about nine seconds. Uh, that whopping one second. Like, how do you calculate the attention span of a goldfish? That's what I want to know. But it said this, and what I loved is the, uh, the internet just ate this up. It was all over the place. There's several articles that reference the study. And one of the commentators that was there, he said this. Um, he said, you know, we thought at one point that we had gotten so low in our communication that we don't even use words anymore. Like we've moved away from person to person down to phone, you know, talking over the phone to now text messaging, and we thought that's the lowest we could get. We thought conversations via short little word segments was about as low as we can get, and then we found a way to get lower. Now we use emojis, these little circular yellow faces with glasses and hearts for eyes and blowing kisses and fist bumps and with thumbs up. And this is how we communicate. Like we found a way to go lower. Perhaps more than at any other time in human history, we are terrible at waiting. We want things and we want them now. In fact, we want things and we want them yesterday. And we've got to have it. And this is really where Noah's story intersects with ours. Because if you're not in one right now, chances are eventually you'll be in a season where you're waiting and there's something that's out of your control, something that you're praying for, something you're hoping for, and you just have no control over it, and so you wait. 
And there's this inner struggle that can begin to take place. And so really what's, what's so bizarre about Genesis is it doesn't give us much about what's happening in Noah's heart. We don't get much about how Noah is dealing with this 70 years, this massive task. All we get is that Noah obeyed God. He did all that he commanded him. That's all we get. But interestingly enough, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, we get a little insight. So turn with me, if you have your Bible, go ahead or click with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and here's what Hebrews 11 is going to do. The verses will also be on the screen. Hebrews 11 looks back at the Old Testament, at the first part of the Bible that recounts God's people, the, the people of Israel, and he links, the author of Hebrews links every single one of these prominent figures in Israel's history. He links them down to one heartbeat, one idea, one word that really is like this constant thread that weaves throughout God's story of redemption. And he, he starts in verse 6. Here's where we'll start reading, and you'll see what that word is. Verse 6 says, And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Faith. That's how Noah did it. Faith. And what that just said is that Noah could not see what was coming. In year 40, year 50, he had no idea when this thing was going to come. He had no idea what it would look like. He had no idea that his vessel was going to float. He had no idea how long he'd be up there. And Noah waited. Concerning things unseen, Noah built an ark for the saving of his household. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. You know what that means? That, that means that, that we can start an organization that ends world hunger. And we can start orphanages all over the world. And we can fight for equality for all people, which are all things that God would cheer and get behind. But if we don't have faith, God is not pleased. If we don't have faith, we don't get anything. And there are two elements to faith that pleases God that are shown in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. We just read them. And I want to show you them, starting that first one. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For anyone who would draw near to God must, number one, believe that he exists. Fairly straightforward. If anyone is going to draw near to him, you've got to believe that he's there. You've got to believe that he exists. Noah, in order to go through that season, he had to believe that God was real. It says that Noah walked with God. Noah knew God. And so Noah knew, like, we must know that there is an authority that we're accountable to. That we aren't the God of our lives. That there is someone that we must report to who created us. There is an absolute truth, an absolute ultimate reality. There is a God. So element number one, you must believe that there is a God. And then element number two, it doesn't just stop there. It says you must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. He rewards those who diligently seek him. 
The word seek right there is, it's a present tense verb that essentially gives this idea of, of a continual action of seeking. There's no stopping to our seeking of him. You must seek and seek and seek. And when things don't make sense, you pursue more and you pursue more and you keep going and you don't stop going. You must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. That God is not just someone in the clouds, that he's not just the man upstairs, but that indeed he's our heavenly father who loves to bless his children. He's personal. He's he's not just someone up there because here's what can happen in the waiting period. In the waiting period, we can come to the place where we stop in the middle of verse 6. Where we say, yeah, it's impossible to please God without faith. If anyone would draw near to him, you must believe he exists, period. And God for us becomes someone who's real. I believe he's real. I believe he he exists. I'm I'm just not so convinced that he cares about what's happening in my life. I believe he's real. I believe he's there. In fact, I would go as far to say I know he's there but I'm just not so sure that he's really even going to do anything about this. I'm not so sure he's a rewarder of those who seek him because I feel like I've been seeking him for a lifetime and I'm still waiting. And what Noah's story begins to do is it begins to bring comfort to our souls as we see a man who persevered and went through and didn't stop. You see, every time we find ourselves in these seasons of waiting, We're left with a choice. We're left with the choice between obedience and convenience. Because rarely, if ever, will will be where obedience and convenience are the same thing. It's always that convenience is something that's opposite of what obedience is in those seasons of waiting. For you, it might be a whole lot more convenient to give up on that relationship. To stop praying for that person to just choose to go your own way. It might be a lot more convenient in your business or place of work to do something that's only slightly unethical that you've convinced yourself because it's what you need in the moment. And when convenience takes precedence over obedience, we find ourselves in a dangerous spot where we don't believe he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And we've reduced God to an impersonal man upstairs rather than our heavenly father. And so we, we stop right in the middle of verse 6 when really isn't the challenge, isn't the, one of the greatest challenges of the Christian faith. Going through your life no matter what's happening and believing that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Isn't that where the battle's fought? Convincing ourselves that like, God is a rewarder of those who seek him. He's not impersonal It's the challenge of being in year 35 of an ark building project, having no clue how it's going to turn out, having no idea when things are going to happen. Noah, concerning things he did not see, was faithful. I remember I was in my uh, senior year of college at the University of Florida, and uh, we were, I was uh, just finishing up, uh, had one more semester to go, and I was praying through what was going to happen in this next season of my life. I knew that uh, I was going to seminary, that I was going to pursue further studies. And um, I remember just not being sure where I was to go. Uh, The the two different options really were either stay in Gainesville, do uh, my grad school online. uh, But the catch was in Gainesville, I only had a part-time job that could pay for about 25% of my expenses. 
And so my, my options were stay in Gainesville and hopefully figure out a way to be able to provide. Or number two was to go home, live at home, and do my studies online and look for a, a job somewhere down here. This is back in 2012. And uh, I had a conversation with my dad that I remember uh, and uh, he, he gave some really great advice, made some great points, and he, he really kind of came to the place where he said, son, it might not be a bad idea for you to come home. Like, you can live at home without rent. Your mom's cooking is here. You can be with your family. Your two abuelas cooking are here. Uh, I'll be here, like, instant access to Cuban food constantly that you don't have in Gainesville, like, and uh, so it's pretty convincing. So, uh, so he, he gave, we had this talk, and, and I came away. You know, it, it probably makes most sense for me to go home. And uh, I remember I went out to Payne's Prairie, which is this uh, beautiful state park that's about 13 miles south of the University of Florida. And I went out there with my Bible and my journal and a pen. And uh, this is something that I, I try and do at least a few times a year where I, where I just get away from people and just be alone with my Bible and my journal. And I remember I was just looking out over the prairie and I was just asking God, like, what do I do? Where, where do I go? Where, where should I go next? And uh, I don't mean to spiritualize the Florida Gators, okay? So uh, forgive me for this, but I promise this is what happened, okay? I'm, a, I'm looking out over the prairie and there's, there's no, like you can't see humanity at all. It's just, lush greenery, and there's this tree line. There's one thing that I did see, one structure. About 13 miles to the north was Ben Hill Griffin Stadium, the swamp, home of my Florida Gators. And uh, in that moment, I can't describe, you know, what it was, but I just knew I had to stay. It, it, It was, for whatever reason, I knew that God was not done with me in Gainesville. And so I stayed. And I journaled about it. I remember writing it down. In fact, I I looked at it the other day. And what began, that was in June of 2012. And I had calculated that I had enough money to make it about four or five months in Gainesville before I would hit the negative. And October came, and I was praying. And the first week of October... I was offered a full-time position at the church that I was a part of. And God answered that prayer. And I wish I could stand before you right now and say, I never once doubted, I believe, it was sure, I was patient. Like, th- that wasn't the case at all. Like, I struggled. I, di- I still, I didn't know if I made the right decision. The waiting was, at some points, awful. As fear started to creep in, like, what, what am I going to do? I'm already committed to a lease. And God came through. It was difficult. It was grueling. But it was so worth it. So what is it that you're waiting for? What's it in your life? Perhaps as we've been sharing this time of study together, that thing, whatever it is, has come to your mind. You can see it clearly. What is it that you're waiting on for God to come through and do? Here's here's what I would encourage you to do. From reading a passage like this, Maybe what you do is you get a little note card, a small piece of paper, and you write down Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For if anyone would draw near to him, 
must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Maybe you write that down and you just put it in your wallet, you put it in your purse, you put it in your dashboard, you, you put it in front of you, you keep it with you. And during this season of waiting, when you have those moments of struggle and they will come, when you have those thoughts and temptations to give in, let that be a cue to pull that little piece of paper out. And you circle that. He's a rewarder. He's a rewarder. He's a rewarder of those who seek him. And you underline it and you underline it and let those moments of struggle be cues for times of thanksgiving and praise. Because what you'll find is God does some of his greatest work in the seasons of waiting. That's when he begins to mold and stretch us into the people that we're going to become. See, in in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, what most scholars believe is the book of Hebrews is a sermon that a pastor would have given to his church. And you can almost feel in different sections in Hebrews when the pastor would have gotten excited, when the pastor would have slowed down, when he would have spoken with a little more empathy. And he's speaking to people who are going through some serious struggles. And Hebrews chapter 11 is like this this series of stories where he's saying, look, remember who's gone before us. Remember who's in the past, who was faithful. Remember Noah, what he endured. Remember Noah, though he couldn't see what was up ahead, how he in faith built the ark. Remember all of these people who have gone before us and they stuck with it, they stayed faithful, and they received their reward. And then we get to Hebrews chapter 12. And it's like the pastor is looking at his congregation and you can almost feel the love in his eyes. You see, many of the people who were affiliated with this church the audience of this letter, we get the sense that there were some from among them who had given up. That the persecution, the difficulty of being a Christian in that season caused them to run away, to give in, to choose convenience. And this pastor looks at them, and listen to what he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, in other words, since those have gone before us are now in heaven cheering us on, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. Let me paraphrase what this writer is saying. He was looking at his people and he was saying, don't quit. Don't give up. I know it's tough. I know you're waiting. I know it's been a while, but don't give in. Remember who's gone before you and remember to fix your eyes on your Savior. Fix your eyes on Jesus because here's what happens when we fix our eyes on Jesus while we wait. It's that he becomes the lens through which we see the wait rather than the things that are surrounding the weight beginning to distort how we view God. When we fix our eyes on him, God corrects what we see in the weight. He's a rewarding God. He's a father who loves to bless his children. And when we read this, we're encouraged. And we get the sense that God is a whole lot more concerned with making us more like Jesus than he is about our comfort. And in fact, in the seasons of waiting, it's where God is saying, look, I don't want the things around you to bring you comfort. Let me be your comfort. 
he stretches us and molds us. And we don't do it alone. Hebrews 12 does not say, let me run this race with endurance because Jesus is the founder and perfecter of my faith. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside. We do it together. It was never meant to be a solo race. It's one that we do as a family. As a church, brothers and sisters, hand in hand, we pursue what God has for us. And so while you're here, while you're waiting, stay faithful. He's a rewarding God. Don't quit. Don't give in. Believe and trust that he is good, that his love endures forever, that he is all wise and knows what's better for you than we do. And trust and watch him work as he delivers on his promise every single time. Just as we've been talking this whole morning about faith, I wonder if some of you who who are here, perhaps for the first time, you need to make the decision to place your faith in Christ. Hebrews 12 says that with joy set before him, Jesus went to the cross. That means that Jesus went to the cross, the mockery and the shame and being spat upon and being ridiculed and scourged, crucified with joy set before him because he knew that one day following that cross would be a day of life when he would not stay dead, but he would rise from the dead. And the veil of the temple that separated us from God is torn in two, and now we can begin a relationship with God that is unhindered, with no obstacles. We were his joy. You were his joy. And maybe today you make that decision for the first time to place your faith in him. If that's you, if you want to make that decision to trust in Christ for your Savior, to bring you hope, to forgive your sins, to be your everything, you can do that right now. Would you bow your heads? Just as we close out this time, if you want to make the decision to trust in Christ as your Savior, you can go to him in this moment of prayer and say something like this from your heart. Just say, Jesus, I know, I know I'm imperfect. I know I struggle. Lord, uh, I need you. I believe that you went to the cross for me and you died for my sins, taking the punishment that I deserved. You suffered hell for me so I can have hope and forgiveness. I believe in what you did. I place my faith in you. Now, I want to follow you with my life. And for the rest of us, Lord, my prayer is that we would leave this place convinced that you're a rewarder of those who seek you, that you're faithful and true, that just as you are faithful to those who have gone before us, just as you were faithful in Noah's life, just as you have been faithful in our lives, today we believe you're gonna stay faithful because you're unchanging, you're perfect, you're holy, and you're glorious. And I pray for those who are here that they would find their hope and that you're a rewarding God. We believe this and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at 
podcast at westpines.org.